Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Robert Guest, the foreign editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, The Economist is wondering, is there a better way to deal with refugees? Twelve people, including children, are known to have drowned when their boats went down early this morning. Europe, the world's largest economy, has struggled to cope with an influx of people from the Middle East and Africa. Turkey, Jordan and Lebanon, which are poorer than Europe, right next to Syria, and have had a much larger influx of people, are finding it even harder. I think that uncontrolled migration is not in the interests of the migrants themselves. It's not in the interests of the countries that people are coming from, travelling through or trying to get to. Is it time to reform the rules and institutions set up after the Second World War to deal with refugees? I'm joined in the studio by Paul Collier, the co-author of Refuge, Transforming a Broken Refugee System. Paul is a professor of economics and government at Oxford University and a former head of research at the World Bank. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. Also joining me in our studio here in London is The Economist's Europe correspondent, Emma Hogan. Hello, Emma. Hello, Robert. Paul, first to you. Why did you and your co-author, Alexander Betts, write this book? Because we were brought in by the government of Jordan in a desperate plea to say, come up with some ideas. We've got a million refugees... Syrian refugees in Jordan. It's breaking the budget. What should we do? So how did you set about that? We were a good team because Alex is director of the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford, so he knows refugees. I've never worked on refugees. I work on economic development in poor countries. Actually, for me, Jordan was kind of too high income for for my comfort zone. It's not part of the bottom billion, is it? It's not part of the bottom billion. But we teamed up and... We really found that we had complementary skills in every way, so we really enjoyed working together, uh, and we started to think. Alex knew the history of global refugee policy and knew that it was broken. This was a legacy from 1950, which by the 21st century was so unfit for purpose that it was deeply frustrating. So he came at it from the deep experience of struggling with a system he knew was rotten to the core. I came fresh, and what I saw deeply shocked me. It was so obvious that things were wrong. How were they wrong? We went, of course, like all the, the, the refugee tourists, to the refugee camps. Right, yes. And one is a sort of showcase UNHCR camp, 60 years of experience went into building it, and there they are, it's their triumph, and it's a vision of hell. Just the serried ranks of tents, people with nothing to do. And that, that's the key, year isn't it? Like on they, year and year. They've got enough to eat, but nothing to occupy the them. The UNHCR model is feed for free, 
shelter for free in camps. Most refugees, both in Jordan and globally, ignore that entire system. Globally, it's, I think it's something like 90% of refugees actually completely bypass the UN system. It's just a broken system. And they bypass it, you mean they could go to the camps, but they choose not they to because they think not they can to. do better on their they own. They would rather do better on their own because the obvious core priority of refugees, who are people who are not chosen to migrate, these are not economic migrants, these are the people who chose to stay home. And their home has become unsafe, either because of disorder or famine or something like that. And they've had to get out with their families. Many of them stay within their country. They're displaced, internally displaced people. About a third of the displaced stumble across the nearest border and get to one of 10 regional haven countries where most refugees on earth are. And the, the one thing those 10 countries have got in common is that they're proximate to conflict. Actually, there's another thing they've got in common. They're all poor countries of emigration. These are not the honeypots where the economic migrants go. So they're places that people would normally leave. So what, what, what do the refugees do? They don't, when they decide not to go to the camps, what do they do? They try their top priority, as yours would be, as mine would be, is to restore some semblance of autonomy. Autonomy brings dignity, and for that, you need to be able to earn a living. And so their priority is to, to re-establish autonomy by trying to find some income. That's often quite difficult, isn't it? They're not allowed to work. UNHCR model, we feed you for free, we provide shelter for free, sit there, we'll look after you. They infantilise people. What's the thinking behind that? It's from 1950. 1950, refugees were in transit, temporary. It made a lot of sense. Now it makes no sense at all. Very often, from the, from the point of view of the rich countries who are debating this at the moment, it's very difficult for them to tell the difference between refugees and economic migrants. And a lot of people think that actually, you know, if people are coming here to find jobs, that's fine. And a lot of people think actually if they're coming here and they're different from us, that's not fine. I mean, the debate is very difficult to tell the difference between the two. And quite often the political debate doesn't, doesn't, doesn't differentiate between the two. I know Emma was on a, a ship in the Mediterranean recently. Who, who were you fishing out of the Mediterranean? So I was on the Dignity One and the central Mediterranean off the Libyan coast, and we were fishing out people from all over sub-Saharan Africa. Most of them were moving for economic reasons. But what became apparent in talking to them is that they'd also gone through a hell of a journey and they were in Libya where they had been treated very badly. So, you know, technically they're economic migrants, but they'd also had this awful journey which makes them very hard to send back from Europe. More broadly, Paul, how would you say we need to rethink the way we deal with outsiders? Well, first of all, refugees are not migrants. There's a very sharp distinction between them. Mm -hmm. They go to different places. They're motivated by different things. Refugees are motivated by fear. Mm -hmm. They're running away from something where, as I say, the life for an ordinary family has become unlivable. 
So they're driven by fear. Where they go, the nearest haven. Because their dream is to go back home. What you were describing is not really refugees at all. They were economic migrants who, through their journey, went to another country where they were facing disorder. Obviously, the sensible solution for that is to get them safely back to the country where they started. There's, uh, there's no two ways about it. I mean, the strategy of fishing people out of the Mediterranean with NGOs being phoned by the people smugglers to say, we've got a boat, you come and pick us up, obviously is a, is a completely unviable model. Now, the way out of that is to create proper safe havens that meet our duty of rescue towards refugees. And that meeting that duty of rescue is the dignity of a decent environment where people are able to earn their own living. Once we have those environments, then, of course, we've got places where people who choose to get into boats can be taken. It's whilst ever we say the only way to get to Europe is to pay a few thousand dollars to a people smuggler. We've got a disastrous model. Less than 5% of the Syrian population is in Europe, but something between a third and a half of all Syrians with university education are now in Europe. Now, that is a disaster, because when Syria gets back to peace, they all get back to peace at some stage. Syria will need reconstruction. Now, reconstruction sounds as if it's about pouring concrete. But actually, it's about rebuilding organizations. Syria will need, and the 19 million Syrians who will be back in Syria will need this small elite of young, educated people who've gone. So if you're, if you're looking at it from the point of view of what the European governments can do or the Western governments can do about this, what would be your sort of top three priorities? Combine the heart with the head. Right? Okay. Behave compassionately but intelligently. We've had three phases in Europe dealing with Syrian refugees. Phase one, 2011 to 2015, which was the heartless head, we did essentially nothing. Mm-hmm. We left Turkey, Jordan and Lebanon hang out to dry. Then phase two was the headless heart. We opened our doors for five months with no means of getting to Europe, so thousands of people drowned. So it was very plenty of heart, but not necessarily a whole lot of head. And now we're back in phase one, the heartless head. We slammed the door, we're sending people back. So we can do a whole lot better than that. I mean, it'd be hard to think of doing anything worse, frankly. Emma, politically, how likely do you think it is that some of the ideas that Paul has suggested might actually happen in Europe? Do you think the appetite's there? I think the appetite for keeping people out of Europe is is definitely there. I mean, one of the big problems at the end of 2015 was that there was an impression, a a correct impression, that Europe had lost control of its borders. Uh, And I think one of the the main problems was the sense of of sort of just numbers of people coming in without any sort of checks or balances knowing where they were coming from. And so I think that at the moment the EU is struggling with how to deal with 
as humanely as possible, keeping these people out of, of Europe. I think that they've struck this EU-Turkey deal, which means that it's meant to be one for one Syrian, sort of one resettled from Turkey, one sent back from Greece. Uh, that has some quite big flaws in it as a deal. Uh, there's been about six billion euros of aid given to Turkey, but there's quite a few controversial aspects of it. The other big problem is how to deal with Libya. At the moment, the EU is struggling with the flows that I encountered in the central Mediterranean of, of people, because Libya isn't a totally functioning state. And so at the moment, they're contemplating you know, dragging people back and sending them to you know, Tunisia and processing them there, or having deals with African countries to stop, stop people going. Because as we briefly discussed earlier, these people are searching for better economic conditions. And as they become richer, they will be more likely to move. But whereas the EU can strike a deal with Turkey because it's a NATO member, uh, and although you know, Turkey is, you know, seems to be becoming increasingly authoritarian, you know, there are sort of institutions there which the EU can deal with. That's just not the case in Libya. And so I think that they are going to be searching for solutions, but it does feel a bit at the moment that they're searching for solutions after the crisis has already happened. So they are you know, becoming a bit desperate. Okay. I'm fascinated by this idea that you can, that European countries or European companies can try to promote formal legal employment for refugees in the first country that they, they, they walk into. How much success have we had so far? To her great credit, Chancellor Merkel has already recognised that model. It's now called the Jordan model. And the Jordan model is already being imitated in Africa. Ethiopia is doing it. They've got an industrial zone. They've got uh, refugees and Ethiopians working together in it. And they are desperate to attract German firms. To her credit, Chancellor Merkel went and visited that zone in January I met with the Ethiopian government two weeks ago, and they particularly said they really want European firms to come to these zones because they say, we've got the Chinese firms coming already, but we want balance. We know that Europe can bring a lot more, especially Germany could bring the vocational training that it's so brilliant at. And so this model is capable of being replicated elsewhere, and it changes the narrative. Whilst ever the narrative is dominated by the idea, we want to ship our people back to you, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ugly narrative. What we're proposing is nothing about ship people back. What we're trying to do is create economic opportunities, both for these poor host countries and for the refugees themselves. It's a win-win, as the Americans would say. And that is a very much more promising line. It happens to coincide with Europe's self-interest, as all good propositions that manage to combine the head with the heart should do. This is in Europe's interest of its head, and it also meets the needs of the heart. Paul Collier, Emma Hogan, thank you very much for joining us. Well, that's all for this episode of The Economist Asks. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at Economist Radio and via email at radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.